Well, this morning we have Pastor Mark Hodges, who's going to be sharing with us uh, this morning. Come on, let's just give it up for Pastor Mark. Wow, great to be here amongst friends and family. And I uh, just want to share something with you before I get into the Word. I had the awesome privilege of being in the Northern Cape in the metropolis of Springbok. Because I thought if I could change the heart of Springbok, we can change the whole team. And it worked. But uh, wonderful to be here. I'll tell you a little bit more about Springbok in a moment. Just want to say it's a privilege. Thanks, Will, to be here. And uh, if you would allow me, I just want to welcome some of our friends, the Croniers from Pretoria. Uh, really wonderful people. And my good friend, Tim Clark from America. Tim's a businessman with a heart for the ministry, and his wife is in, in, in full-time ministry. I have great respect for them, and uh, wonderful to, to see him here as well. So, um, we encountered something very interesting, which I don't think you will ever have in the city church. But in the church building in Springbok, they didn't have a problem like people might have here with rats or maybe mice in the roof. They had dussies in their church building roof. And I mean, it sounds like, and I, I don't know if you know, maybe I should tell you what a dussie is. I don't even know what the English word is for a dussie. But it's a dussie. And uh, you can go and Google this, but it's true. It's actually related, the closest, closest relative to the elephant. True, you can go Google that. In any case, so don't imagine these big animals roaring in the roof. But it was a real problem, so I decided to tell them a story, uh, and I kind of adapted a little bit. So the story is about a small little town like Springbok, and there were a number of churches in this town, a, uh, a Dutch Reformed church, a charismatic church, an Anglican church, and a Roman Catholic church. And each church building was infested with dussies. So the different churches dealt with the dussie problem in different ways. The Dutch Reformed church called a meeting to decide what they were going to do about the rats. They prayed about it. So after much consideration, they determined the rats were predestined to be there. So they could not interfere with God's divine will, and they had to put up with the rats. The charismatics said, what rats? We will not confess anything negative. So they ignored the rats, but they were still there. The Anglican group got together and they decided that they were not supposed to harm any of God's creatures. So they humanely trapped the rats and set them free a few kilometers outside of town and three days later they were back. The Roman Catholics came up with the most effective solution. They baptized the rats. <laughs> Obviously by sprinkling. And then they registered them as members of the church. 
So now they only see them on Christmas and Easter. Now, I, I wanted to tell you that story because I want to emphasize how important it is to attend church and not just to come at Christmas and Easter. And uh, I don't know if you can recall, but, and, and I went and checked it out. It was a year ago that I ministered here on the gathering of the church, how important it is for us as believers to get together. And there are many New Testament witnesses confirming this. But today I want to speak about the, the other side of that, and I've entitled the sermon, The Scattering of the Church. So I want to speak about the scattering of the church, and I'm, I'm using the word scattering in inverted commas because I don't want people to take this literally, and I don't want anybody to be involved in scattering the church. I'll never forget uh, when I was involved in a Bible school, there was a student from uh, overseas that applied, and I used to interview all of them, all the international students. And on the application form, we asked, did you have previous experience in ministry? And this guy said, yes, uh, I'm actually an apostle. So I thought, that's very interesting that an apostle is coming to Bible school. So in my interview, I asked him about his apostolic ministry. I said, how come you were involved in apostolic ministry? He said, I was involved in two church splits, so there are now four churches. <laughs> so that was a new definition of the apostolic ministry that I uh, discovered that day. So I'm not suggesting that you should split the church or divide the church. I'll explain what I mean by, by scattering. You see, because... What we're doing this morning is vitally important. We spoke about that a year ago. We need to gather together, but we also need to go out there. We need to scatter. And we gather for worship, but we scatter for work. We gather for prayer, but we should scatter for proclamation. We gather for edification, but we should scatter for evangelization. We gather for teaching, but we should scatter for reaching. And so that's the other side of the coin here. And in order to understand our calling as a scattering church, and actually the, the phrase scattering church is an oxymoron because the church, the word church, means gathering. So we're a scattering gathering. But in order to understand that, I want to read a scripture that Jesus used the first time he preached in public. It was the announcement of his messianic mandate, and he quoted from Isaiah 61, and if you have your Bible with you, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of still old school, I, I know you might have it on your smartphone, uh, but I thought I wanted to give you a, a screen break. I haven't got any PowerPoints this morning, so if you don't have... <laughs> your Bible with you, um, just listen to, to what the Scripture says. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all 
who mourn. Now, if you read further, it will give you more information about the uh, mission of Jesus. And if you can remember, Jesus said these words to his disciples. He said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. So if this is the mission of Jesus, it's our mission. And, and the church can work on that messianic mandate. And I love the, 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 the song that you sang about there's power in the name of Jesus and there's an army, an army rising up because that's what we are. And we're supposed to, to be out there like, like Jesus did. Now, I, I want to give you four things that the church should be built on. And this is the mission that the church has. And, and I'll, I'll just mention them to you, and then we'll speak about each one individually. The church should be spiritually vibrant, evangelistically potent, socially significant, and morally relevant. So let me speak about those four things because we can find them in this scripture that Jesus quoted. Let me start with being spiritually vibrant. And here, there are many aspects that I could touch on because the word vibrant speaks about being alive, being lively, being vigorous, being powerful, being dynamic. And that's what the church should be. But I just want to focus on, on one aspect, and that is the fact that we need comprehension of the anointing. So spiritual vibrancy is crucial, or, or comprehending the anointing is crucial to be spiritually vibrant. And I know I'm speaking to people in Pentecostal charismatic circles that sometimes have weird ideas of what the anointing is. You ask some people, what is the anointing? And they say, it's when you have goosebumps or when you fall over or when you stuck to the floor, or when you cried throughout the service, or when you laughed even. And they have these weird ideas of what the anointing is, but none of those things are really the anointing. That is your response to the anointing. That's how you react to the anointing. But what is the anointing? Well, let's read what, what Isaiah 61 and verse 1 says. It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord God has anointed me to preach and to do some other things. So God doesn't anoint you just for the feeling. It's not just about feeling something great. It's about doing something, and this is what, what Jesus speaks about here. Do yourself a favor. Whenever you read the word anointing, especially in the New Testament, replace it with the word empowerment, enablement, because that is what the anointing is about. It's empowering you to go and, and be the true church, the scattering church that God wants us to be. In Acts 10 and verse 38, I think we all know this scripture very well. It speaks about Jesus and how God anointed him. And here's proof, incidentally, that Jesus needed the anointing, that he needed to be empowered, that he laid aside his divine rights and privileges and power, and God had to anoint him. We know the scripture by heart, I'm sure, many of you. It says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power 
who went about feeling good. Oh, sorry, I misquoted. Let me, let me read it. God anointed Jesus Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about looking good. What does it say? Who went about doing good? The anointing is not just about feeling good or looking very spiritual. It's about doing something. Thank God we read out of the book of Acts, not the book of feelings. And that's what the church is about. The church should be out there doing something because that's why we are anointed. God anoints you with a purpose. When the disciples got together with Jesus just before he ascended into heaven, uh, in Acts 1, you can go and read about this. It says that he, uh, Jesus instructed them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait until. So they had to wait until. Until what? Until the Holy Spirit will come and empower you. And you shall be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, starting in the city, then in the provinces, Judea and Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That was God's plan. And that was why they were anointed, to scatter. Wow. So in verse 4, Jesus says to them, don't move, don't act until you are empowered. But here's what the church did. And I say this with great respect because I think we kind of guilty of the same thing. They stayed until and beyond. They overstayed their welcome in Jerusalem. When Jesus already wanted them to be out in the provinces, they were still in Jerusalem. You see, if you don't use what God gives you, the power that God gives you, you're going to lose it. I think I heard it a few times yesterday that the referee said to the guys, use it or lose it. And the ball must go down the line. Here we are in a sacred scrum, a holy huddle, but we don't score any points because we don't get the ball out there. Wow, I should have been the coach or assistant coach. <laughs> now, here's, here's something interesting. Look at verse 8 with me, Acts 1, verse 8. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's what the anointing is about. And then he says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, here's an interesting thing. That's Acts 1.8. It took Acts 8.1 for Acts 1.8 to be fulfilled. Because what does Acts 8.1 say? Listen what it says. It says, A great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. In my Bible, I took the liberty. I don't usually add to Scripture, but I thought... I'd be okay if I do this. I added a word there, and I said, a great persecution arose against the church, which was still at Jerusalem. Because by this time, they should have been out there. 
And listen what it says. Let, let's read the rest of the verse. And they were all scattered. Where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's where Jesus said that they would be next. And thank God, in verse 4, we read that at least when they were scattered, they preached wherever they went. Because that's the purpose of the anointing. You are anointed to preach the gospel. That's what the church is all about. And all of them, not just the professional preachers, they all had a message. So here was God's plan. Starting in Jerusalem, be empowered, then Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And it's very interesting, if you read the last chapter in the book of Acts, where uh, does Paul find himself? In the city of Rome. Why? Because Rome was the capital of the known world at that time. So literally at the ends of the earth. You know the expression that says, all roads lead to Rome. But the other side is also true. All roads lead from Rome. And it's interesting that the Romans were the first people that really uh, started building modern kind of roads. Why did Paul land in Rome and incidentally as a prisoner, like the other guys, were scattered into Judea and Samaria? Now, please list, let me say this. I'm not saying persecution comes from God, but listen, if you become too comfortable, God might need something to shake you up. So they were scattered into Judea and Samaria. Paul landed in Rome as a prisoner because from there he could reach the whole world. That was God's plan. And so the church must understand, why does God anoint me? Why does he empower me? So that I could go out with a message and go and, and, and preach the gospel. Here's the second thing. So the church must be spiritually vibrant and have a comprehension of the anointing. The second thing is the church should be evangelistically potent. And evangelistically potent means to understand the commission to the world. Let me read Isaiah 61 and verse 1 again. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus often said this, come, come to me, I'll give you rest. When Jesus is about to descend, uh, to ascend to the Father, what does he say? Go. The moment you come to Jesus, you don't stay there because he goes with you. There's an army rising up. Amen. And we need to go. Like Jesus said, he was sent, we are sent. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. We know Matthew 28, 19 very well. Go and... Um, it says, make disciples of all nations. So that's what Jesus said. Don't misread it like I did earlier. He said, go, not woe. Somebody said in English, it's interesting, two-thirds of God's name is go. Because God wants you to go. Not just to 
to be together, uh, uh, as I said, in, in a holy huddle. Anybody here understand Afrikaans? Anybody? Can you please help those people because it's untranslatable. Matthew 28, 19 says the following in Afrikaans. Gaan dan jyn. And Mark disciples. And by mense het net jyn gegaan. I'll explain that afterwards, Will. It's, it's a long story. But it's so important to, to realize I have to go out there. I, I'm so thankful that when we were in, in Bible school hundreds of years ago, we were all blessed with a complimentary booklet of T.L. Osborne called Outside the Sanctuary. Man, that book hit me. Because he says, the most evangelized acre in town is the ground where the church is built on. And he says, how do we expect to hear the gospel again and again when some people have not heard it once? And th therefore, he speaks about outside the sanctuary. I'll say more about that because I want to quote a, a piece of uh, prose from, from someone else. But we need to realize that Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. That's our calling. And I found a quote by a very aptly named Dr. Roy Fish, who was professor of evangelism at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And here's what he said. Evangelizing in the church is like fishing in a bathtub. It's terribly convenient, but you don't catch much. And if we expect the church to grow by fishing in this bathtub, we will not catch much. We need to be out there with a message. We need to scatter. We need to be evangelistically potent because that's, that's our calling. Now, let me come back to that, that book of, uh, of T.L. Osborne, Outside the Sanctuary. I found this uh, piece of... Uh, of writing by Sir George MacLeod, who was a Scottish minister. And uh, by the way, he made this statement. He said, the church is a movement, not just a meeting house. And here's what he said, because he also challenges the church to go beyond uh, the walls of the church and not just to be contained within the wall. He says, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace, as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two criminals. On a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan, they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And at the kind of place where cynics talk smut, and thieves curse, and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's people ought to be. Wow. We need to take the church outside the sanctuary.
Did you know why the Dead Sea is dead? It wasn't that it was sick and then became dead. It was dead from the beginning. Why? Because there are two seas or two lakes in Israel, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And the difference is that the Sea of Galilee is the most fertile area in Israel because it takes water in, but it gives water out. The Dead Sea is dead because it only receives. And there are many Dead Sea Christians because they only receive and they never give out. God expects us to be fruitful and we need to take the message out there. So don't become a swamp. Remain a, a river. Don't become subcultured and inbred and irrelevant, but get out there. I, I, I think sometimes we have that fort mentality. We used to sing that song about hold the fort. Sometimes the Christians have a fort mentality instead of a force mentality because we lock ourselves up in the spiritual fort and, and you know, if there's a lonely straggler, a straggling little sinner out there, we quickly get out, grab him, lift up the way bridge, close the gates, and we're back in our fort. But we should be the church on the attack, not just the church on the defense. And that's where God wants us to be, to take the gospel out there. It's so important for us to be evangelistically potent. The third important pillar of the church is to be socially significant. And here's what it takes, compassion for the poor. If we want to be socially significant, we need to have a heart for the poor. Let me read Isaiah 61 again. The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison door to those who are bound. So those are pe people who are poor in some aspect of their life. They are needy. And the church has a responsibility. That's our calling. And the reason why the religious people didn't like Jesus is because he spent time with sinners. And when they confronted him, he said, I was sent for the sick. He says, those people who think they're healthy because those Pharisees were self-righteous. They thought that they were righteous. They think they don't need the physician. He says, but I have come to minister healing to those who are sick. And that's why God has called us. We need to have a heart for those people. And I'll never forget, uh, at, at, at Rhema, once we had uh, a visit by Tommy Barnett, who has a great church in Phoenix, Arizona. And I, I've never seen a message change a large church like that. And here was the, the theme of his message. It was about the widow who had that little flask of oil in her house. And the question that he kept on asking throughout his sermon is, what is in your house? It might look insignificant and small, but God can perform miracles if you put that in his hand. It's amazing that God asked Moses the same question, what is in your hand? And he said, well, just the shepherd's rod. And God used that to open 
the seed. What is in your house? What ministry do you have? What can you contribute? God's given you something. It's important for us to, to live that out. You, you, you can look around you, you, you'll find the poor, the sick, the disabled, the elderly, widows, orphans, uh, abused women and children, traumatized people, broken marriages, so many other things, dysfunctional families, prisoners, prostitutes, sexually broken people, drug abusers, illiterate, unskilled people. Find something to do. And come to the leadership and say, how, how can I live my vision out? Now, I want to challenge you this morning. I can guarantee you, very few of us, if we were asked this question, would have given this answer. It's in the Bible. If I ask you this morning, give me a definition of what you consider to be pure religion. Think about it for a moment. Very few would have given the answer that is found in the Bible. Listen to this. James 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Wow. Now, there's something else that makes this even more radical. I want to show you something, and, and, and you can go and check it out in, in, in a good study Bible when you get home. But go and read James, two, uh, uh, James 1, 27, and you'll find that there's one word, and if you have a good Bible, it will print that word in italics, which means that word does not appear in the original Greek. The translators inserted it because they thought it would make it more clear. And it's the little word, and. And here's what it says. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the fathers, this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let me leave the and out and see how the meaning changes radically. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the fathers, this to visit widows, uh, orphans and widows in their trouble to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Wow. Did you get it? So if we read it the way that it's translated, it says there are two things that you have to do to be involved in uh, pure religion. You must visit widows and orphans, and you must keep yourself unspotted. But if we leave the and out as it was written, it says this, here's how you stay unspotted. And if I can give you the unauthorized version according to St. Mark, it says this, visit those in trouble to stay out of trouble. And the reason why we have, and please listen to me, and I'm not being harsh here, the reason why we have so many counseling cases in the church is because people are not doing anything. So they're only focusing on their problem and their issues. The moment you start getting involved with the problems of other people, your problem seems to become smaller and more insignificant. So we need to be socially significant. We need to impact our communities. Don't just say, if you read the, the rest of, of the book of James in the second chapter, don't say to someone who is cold, be warm, or who doesn't have food, 
be fed. Hallelujah, brother. God bless you. Do something about it. Impact your community. I don't know what your eschatological view is in this church. And some of you don't even know what eschatology is. So never mind what your view is. Your view about end times, about the return of Jesus. Say there was a rapture, okay? Let's sketch a hypothetical scenario here. Say the rapture, and the rapture is when all the believers are removed out of the earth and only the unbelievers remain behind. Say the rapture took place on a Monday. Will it take until the next Sunday for your community to realize the church is gone? Because suddenly when they drive past, they say, oh, where are all the cars that we used to see here on a Sunday? It's only the pastor's car who's... (laughs) (laughs) No, I I could say that because Adrian's not here. (laughs) Don't tell him I said that. But can you understand what I'm trying to say? What impact are you making on your community? Will they miss you when you're gone? Because that's where God wants us to be. We need to be socially significant. And then lastly, the church needs to be morally relevant. And that requires cognition of the message. We need to understand. We need to know what our message is. Going back to Isaiah 61 and verse 2, it says here that our message is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now again, I think in many cases, churches have this message wrong because it says we need to proclaim the acceptable year and the day of vengeance. Some churches preach the acceptable day and the year of vengeance because their message is so full of condemnation and is so full of the judgment of God And they don't speak about God's favor, how we can actually get God's favor as a free gift through grace. That's what what grace means, unmerited favor. But we focus so much on, on, on God's judgment. And there are many scriptures in the Bible, go and read in the Old Testament even, where he says that God's anger lasts only for a moment, but his goodness for a lifetime. In the same book of Isaiah, it says, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you. Why focus so much on the judgment? Let's tell people the good news, and that is there's forgiveness of sins in the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's a free gift. Let's proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I'm just thinking of this now. And I know this church is not guilty of it, but so many churches, when it comes to the end of the year, and it's 2019, they want to predict for 2019 based on the numbers. 19 means this. 
I have news for you. Our Gregorian calendar is wrong in any case. You missed 2019 by about four to six years. It's gone. Your prediction is old. And based on those numbers, they, they try and use numerology and all kinds of things that they call gematria, which really is, is occultic, Kabbalah. And it's not a swear word. There is a, a religion like that. <laughs> but here's what I say at the beginning of each year. We live in the acceptable year of the Lord. Hallelujah. I can expect God's favor this year. And that's the promise that I'm standing on. And that's the message that we should preach to the world. And not just focus on, on condemnation and, and vengeance, etc. I know we must be the moral voice, the conscience of the world. But let's bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's tell them how to escape judgment. Because we have this attitude, I'm holier than what you are because I'm against more things than what you are. And it's so negative. <laughs> it's the good news that we preach here. And I believe this, that the church has a message out there. Now, I spoke about outside the sanctuary, getting outside the walls of the church. Here's what Jesus said about us. He said, you are the light of the world, not the light of the illuminated. Because sometimes we have these, look at my light competition in the church. Look at my light. Look at mine. Look at mine. You're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Not the salt in the shaker. And incidentally, it's called a shaker because sometimes it takes a bit of shaking to get the salt out. And we need to be the salt of the earth out there. And tell the people, here's the message of God. That in Jesus Christ, God reconciled the world to himself. I want to quote, in closing, another man with a very appropriate name. He was the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, and his name was William Temple. And he said this about the church, and this is one of the most amazing quotes about the church that I've read. He said, the church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Why do we exist? Not just for ourselves. We exist for the world out there. That's why God gave the church. And I know, Tim, you can help me. Scat is not a good word to say to people, eh? You say scat to animals, don't you, in America? So it's not a good word. What can I say to them? Scat turf, at least. Okay. <laughs> Let's scatter. Let's get out there. Scat is like food set, I think, and it's not a nice <laughs> word. Let's get out there. Let's affect the world. Let's impact our community. 
I'm going to, I know I said I, I'm concluding, I love concluding, I, sometimes I conclude 10 times in one sermon. So, <laughs> I really want to conclude with this one. I heard about a preacher who started a church in a small rural community, and uh, he really, there was no one supporting him, he had meager support from his denomination, didn't have uh, much money. When it came to having meals on Sunday, he just had bread and jam. And uh, there was a kind of a notorious man who got converted in the church. And uh, the pastor, as he was walking to his house, he had to walk past this man's house. And the first Sunday after this man got saved, he walked past his house and he smelled this wonderful aroma of grilled chicken. And he was complaining to the Lord on his way home. He said, Lord, here I am. I'm giving my life. And this man is eating grilled chicken. I'm going back to bread and jam. So the next Sunday, the same thing happened. He decided this time, I'm going to go in to this man and just speak to him about this. So he went in. He said to him, listen, I don't understand this. I'm the pastor. You, you're born again two weeks. And you're eating chicken. I must go back to bread and jam. He says, Pastor, you told me to pray. You taught me. So the pastor received the rebuke, humbled himself, went home, prayed, asked the Lord. The next Sunday, the same thing happened. He's still on, on, on bread and, and, and jam, and this man is eating his, his chicken. So here's what, what, what happened. He decided, I'm walking into this house again. He said to the man, listen, I prayed, but it didn't work. He said, Pastor, how, how did you pray? He said, I asked God to give me a chicken. He said, Pastor, that's the wrong prayer. If you look around us in the neighborhood, many of our neighbor, neighbors have chickens. I just ask God, show me the chicken. <laughs> and here's what I want to say. We actually sometimes pray unscriptural prayers and we say, God, please use me. He made you and saved you because he wants to use you. Stop asking him to use you. Change your prayer and just say, God, please show me where you want to use me. Because you have a ministry. I believe that with all of my heart. Please listen to me. It's not just the people up here who are in the ministry. We are here to equip you for your ministry. You have a ministry. Let's stand. I want us to, to just for a few moments close our eyes. And I want to ask you that question that Tommy Barnett asked. That the prophet asked the widow in the Bible. What is in your house? What can you do? Where are you talented? Where is your passion? And you know what? It's not the, the earth-shaking deeds sometimes that make a difference. 
but it's a combination of all those little things, little acts that can make a difference in this world. I've made this commitment every time I put petrol in my car. I've decided to just greet that petrol attendant in his own language and then say to him, God bless you. I've never, never experienced one person who did not smile back at me with a broad smile. There's so much goodwill in this world. We just need to to do random acts of kindness. Why don't you carry a Bible verse in your car and then pay for the guy behind you at the toll gate and say to the attendant, give this to him or her. Why don't you pay for somebody's groceries? Do something to express the love of Jesus. There's so much that we can do. Random acts of kindness that we can perform to be the scattering church out there that would be spiritually vibrant, evangelistically potent, socially significant, and morally relevant. The good news is not just preached in words. And our prayer should be this, like Augustine said many years ago. Let me preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Father, we want to just reflect this morning and we want to look inside of our hearts.